Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode seven, The Side Effect. Written by L. Lipson and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. IMDb is giving this an 8.3. Now the structure of this episode is different. So when we get into our plot, we're going to break it down by story. Essentially, we got three stories here. Fen, Katie, and Zelda interspersed with narration by Penny. Penny 40. That's right. So happy to see. Rolling Stone said Side Effect is a spiritual and narrative sequel in many ways to six short stories about magic, which was episode eight of last season. The collection of asynchronous tales where we met Cassandra, we saw the drama of the mirror bridge, and the episode was actually bookended by Penny. They go on to say, while it is largely setting in motion storylines for the season's second half, it is also articulating what the series excels at, examining characters who, on many other shows, would typically be plot devices at best in service of the hero's story. Not so on The Magicians. Yeah, The Magicians, we've always said from day one, one of their strongest points is the ability to have so many heroes and keep them all relevant time and time again. So many shows do this wrong. So many movies do this wrong. Too many cooks. Don't know what to do with this person. Don't know what to do with this person. The Magicians knows what to do with every person, for the most part. But they also have the luxury of having 13 episodes where they can let go of a character for two or three episodes. Katie, for example. And they've done that oftentimes with Josh. And many other characters, Fen as well. But then they can create an episode like this and be creative and bring them all back to the forefront. Zelda, to me, was never a main character or really a side character. She did feel like a pivotal character for sure. And her importance has definitely grown, especially last season and uh, this season for sure. So that was a happy surprise for me. And um, I'm thinking, am I going to like her? Yeah, I want to start off with my pros for the episode. I understand the premise of what the Magicians was trying to do here, and so many people that are talking about this episode are praising it for that reason, that even the Magicians book by Lev Grossman, as fantastic as it was, still did have Quentin, your white male protagonist, as the center of the story. Yes, it was turning a lot of those tropes on its head. It was bringing in all these other characters as being critically important and flipping the idea of what it means to be the center of the story, and we talk about that often, that... Quentin's struggle is finding out he is not the hero of his own tale. But the Magician's TV show, I feel, has gone even further with that. Yes, you could still say that Quentin and Alice are central to the storylines, but these characters that they're discussing here as side characters and pushing the point of, we're going to bring them to the forefront this episode to show you they're equally important. They are deserving of this time and attention. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes. I don't know that I ever felt they weren't. There are many characters here that I don't regard as just side characters, even if they don't get as much screen time or we don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. We've gotten evidence time and again that they have their own journeys that they're going on. Sometimes if we don't see them for a little while, it's because they're living their life where they're the center and hero of their journey. Creating their own book. Exactly. So I don't even know that I felt I needed that explained to me in that way. I do like the time that they take to go back to some of them. This is part of what makes 
the magicians brilliant in keeping everyone relevant in my mind. I agree with you. Two things to that. One, we are a bit of an anomaly. We're breaking down every episode, all the characters. We would be less likely to feel that way. But also, I believe The Magicians wasn't just talking about this one show. I think they were talking about shows and movies In general, as a whole. of yeah. course. Of course. They're highlighting how different they actually are from a lot of other stories being told. The other thing that I loved so much about this, I did really enjoy six short stories about magic because of the Penny bookend, but it's even more effective here because you need a way to introduce what you're doing in a structure that's very different, such as an episode like this. If you remember, six short stories was like that in that each story was told from a different perspective. In fact, the scenes that we were getting with Zelda and Harriet, they did MOS with no synchronous audio track to more fully immerse us in that experience. That was so cool. So there were some similarities to this, and it could very easily feel like three disjointed stories. I felt by adding Penny in there, it helped tie them together better. What more logical character to describe what's happening to us than somebody who actually has access to the books about all of these people can see how it's all going to unfold. And plus, we've been wanting to see more about what's going on with Penny 40. So that was a brilliant opportunity to take advantage of both of those things. Now, I hesitate to even bring up my cons because I know that a lot of people really loved this episode. But I I feel there's sort of an ongoing problem that continued here that the past couple of episodes have been feeling a little bit choppy and disjointed to me. And if this had been kind of a standalone rather than on the heels of that, I think I would have been fine with it, but it felt like a continuation in some ways of that problem. So for instance, I love telling Fen's story and I love getting a look more at what's going on with her, but that all felt a little forced. We've been saying how they have to keep conjuring up these issues and fillery and that kind of felt like another thing in that basket to me. Yeah, I'm on board with your feelings on that. Um, I think... Maybe part of the reason is because it's not really about Fillory. So when they even bring Fillory into the fold, it feels already a little out of place. Our head is just not in Fillory right now. That's definitely true. And maybe all of these items, I'm assuming definitely all of the things that are happening there will weave into a big picture that makes sense to us in the end. But right now, it just feels like a bunch of different problems that they keep bringing up and not going back to or resolving there. Yeah, a good example of that is the flower to make the animals talk. It looks like they did get the, for lack of a better word, nectar. To Beet make, juice. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the antidote. And I believe it worked on all the other animals, but not on our lizard. Which there's got to be a reason for that. It's a special lizard here to deliver a message to Margot. But again, I feel like it was never about the animals not speaking. It was about using that as a tool to get Josh and Margot to fight. Because that's obviously growing into a bigger storyline. And more importantly, Margot's journey. So even though we're highlighting Fen here and saying she's just important, we do know it's kind of all going to come back around to what's happening with Margot. And, and that's a little bit unavoidable. And they've brought up a ton of things from Civil War in West Loria to the Fingerling Isles and Lady Pike to the talking animals. It's just feels like a ton of balls in the air and it's like that with every area and it seems like it's getting harder and harder to juggle now the magicians is amazing if any show can do it i'm not feeling any of them drop yet they're magicians they can juggle (laughs) it's just 
it's it's getting a little much for me, even as a viewer. But I am curious who that woman in the green cape is. Oh, you don't have any thoughts? I thought you would have an immediate oh. conjecture. Because where does your mind always go? Speaking of balls in the air, Ember's balls. The witch with the blood? Yeah. Oh, I didn't put that together. No? It looked like a younger woman, not a witch. Oh, I couldn't Maybe. really tell with that hood up anything about her. Just that they call her the green lady. She's running into the forest. Hmm. I wonder. I, I would like if that's how they tie things up. That'd be awesome. By bringing in story, you know, bring something like that back around. Do you think it's Chatwin, Jane? Oh, there's another good idea. I like that. Well, before we get into talking about our plot, let's go over new faces and places. We got to meet Derek, a character I really enjoyed, played by Chris Brochu, Penny's seeming trainee who turns out to be a top supervisor testing him for a promotion. Yeah, he was awesome. He played that role so well that I really bought it. He was this kind of arrogant new library member that couldn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was just not really reading or paying attention to these stories. That just made me think, how many times do you think Penny is getting tested and he doesn't even know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the more we learn about the order of the library, the more they fascinate me. It's not like just pulling new things out to flesh out a story. It feels like it's all been there all along and we're just uncovering it, peeling back like layers of an onion. Well, yeah, it looks like this underworld library is in a way separated from the rest of the library chains because they're willing to let things fall apart up there if need be. If it's part of what's supposed to happen, they're supposed to just document it. We always wondered what the distinction was. We knew they were a separate branch, but what is the functionality? How are they all connected? How does this work? And yes, it feels like down there, they read the books. They know what's going to happen. Penny tells us their main quote, we see but do not intervene. We get the other side of that here with our glimpse of the governing council of the order that I can't wait to discuss, who seem much more active in the goings-on here on Earth and with magic and everything else. We also got the reappearance of Pete, played by David Call, Marina's old hedge acquaintance, who is now helping Katie to locate magical items. Man, we pulled him off the back shelf, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, it took me a second to realize who he was. Mm-hmm. He seems kind he's, of... He's just kind of useless, mm -hmm. uh, you know? A character I really enjoyed, who I think is going to be very complex, very gray, was Everett, played by Brian Markinson, the leader of the governing council of the Order. We got a little bit of the breakdown. We know there's... A head of personnel, a head of regulation. Everett seems like the one in charge. I don't know what his title is. And then our Zelda. And there's probably many others, just like a government. Yeah, but this seemed to be the main <clears throat> kind of ruling body. Yeah. They were there to make an important decision here about Alice. And so you would imagine that's everybody that kind of counts in that hierarchy. Well, and finally, we got the Baba Yaga, who is actually Bailey, Katie's landlord. Hmm. <laughs> And she channels the vengeful spirit of a Slavic witch in order to help her with difficult tasks like collecting rent. It's so funny. I'm sure there's so many landlords in the world that hate dealing with that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, I need a Baba Yaga. I really enjoyed Bailey as a character when she was out. She was funny and spunky. The Baba Yaga, I don't mm. know. <laughs> this is another one of those mummy moments for me. It ended funny. It, it, right. Like, okay. They saved it, but it didn't get enough time and energy. The 
the voiceover work there when she was the witch. Like it didn't match up with the lips entirely. I, I don't know. It was a little funky. And I, in general, I felt like we were mostly tossing out a bunch of stuff when it came to Katie's storyline. And we'll get there in a minute. Doesn't she look kind of young to own a place like that and be a landlord? No, I didn't even think about that. Maybe she was the Baba Yaga to get it. Maybe that keeps her young. First of all. Maybe she's like hundreds of years old. Maybe. (laughs) We got a lot of magical stuff come up in this episode. We had already been introduced to the Deweys, but there's another factor of magic going on here we weren't aware of, that they are also tracking devices through the use of cobalt. Now, is cobalt poisonous? I don't think so. It's an element. Maybe in large doses it can be detrimental, but it seemed like... The negative side effects were happening because of the interaction with certain spells, certain types of magic. It was the fact that hedge witches piece together these enchantments and it doesn't mesh with the elementals of the Dewey. And of course, (laughs) this is another commentary here that I like, classically trained magicians who aren't involved in that kind of thing wouldn't think about side effects such as that. It kind of shows the elitism Okay. Uh, mentality of the library. For places, we heard about Corian's land, but we haven't actually seen it yet. This is the place where Fen is going to go to look for the Green Lady. They say that it's the Sloth's Bane. I don't know why or what that's going to mean. It's kind of interesting. And we also got the department that Penny is going to be promoted to. Secrets taken to the grave. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. When Penny first went to the Underworld branch, we saw this department. Yes, we did. he was hell-bent on escape. And he saw people coming out of the door hysterically crying. Yes. Because that's the room they were being taken into. I remember that room. I don't know if that specifically was the name of it. Oh, I could swear almost 100%. I remember that title thinking, oh, that's kind of dark. <coughs> and imagine being the person that has to hold that information. It's almost like being a therapist. I feel like this is going to be a very difficult job for Penny, but an interesting narrative structure. Well, Jason, let's get into our plot. We're going to start each storyline off by seeing what Penny has to say first and then getting into it. We open up with him reading about Zelda when the new trainee Derek enters. He explains that the last book on Matilda Fremont he shelved under disappointing prodigies. Slightly frustrated, Penny points out that he didn't read it through thoroughly. As Derek has only been there three weeks, he understands his focus is probably mostly on leaving, so he tests him again. He wonders if he got a chance to read the other books he gave him. Derek says he put Quentin and Alice under star-crossed romances and filed the others under side characters in epic quests. After all, Quentin is the center of the whole thing, the one the British girl picked to save the world, but Penny points out he thinks he chose him because he looks like Derek. He says, you think you've seen stories like this before, so you can guess what's going to happen, who's important and who isn't, but you're trapped inside your own POV. These books are a gift because they allow you to see other points of view. You'll find the story doesn't end the way you think, and the most important characters aren't who you'd expect. I really enjoyed these scenes. I think these were the best parts of this episode. One, I pointed this out last episode, his cadence is really interesting. It makes you want to hear everything he's saying. And this new kind of confidence that he has. He always had confidence, but not this way. This is kind of a comfortable confidence. Comfortable in what you're feeling, comfortable in yourself and your thoughts. But also the way they filmed these scenes, everything was slanted. So when Derek was speaking, the room was slanted to the left a little bit. And when Penny was speaking, the room was slanted to the right. 
and it was a little uncomfortable, which we really enjoy these kinds of tricks. They do that a lot in Mr. Robot. I love mm-hmm. that. But also the way they moved the camera, kind of zoomed into Penny's face. They came in from the top, down in, and then the entire time you're getting a look at this board that's behind Penny that seems to be a map of the library branch, and certain areas are lit up. Yeah, it reminds me of LIRR. Yeah. The railroad. Yeah. Yeah, it's got little lights that seem to be lit. I wonder what that indicates. I'm fascinated to find out more. But while we're talking about cameras and all that stuff, I wanted to bring up how I love the screen cuts in this episode. They were very careful to piece some of these separate stories together. Here's just a few examples. The broken glass with Zelda. Mm. She picks it up. You start to hear crunching. Your mind picks that up and is like, oh, no. Ugh. But no, it was the next scene, Pete was crunching glass. Um, Mortar and Crunching pencil. ice, yes. Yeah. And the other one, there was plenty of them, but the other one I want to point out is another shot with Katie and Pete. There was the coin shot where Pete is putting the coin in his pocket. Then they go to the dead man's arm, which quickly brings us to the other guy's the arm. traitor at the black market. And then to his coin. Mm-hmm. It just tells the story and combines it very well. They use narrative for the weaving too, so... Penny would be in the present moment with Derek and then they would start talking about the book, the story, what was happening. And he would say something like, well, while that was going on with Margot, did you see what Fen was doing? And then Mm -hmm. we panned into Fen. So it's almost like the way I tell my students to write papers. Make sure you have a sentence that connects your one paragraph to the next so the reader feels a flow and can understand where you're going. That's exactly what they did here. And we try to do that with the podcast. Yeah, segueing. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we just go to, next is the plot. <laughs> we just don't have a segue. <laughs> well, the segue here, Penny gives Derek an easier example to continue testing him. This is what I was just saying. What seems like Margot's birthright story, the part with the lizard, is really more about what's going on with Fen. After we learn the talking animals were struck dumb, we see Fen tell Rafe she had a dream the other night about the bunnies with their throats cut. She thinks it was a prediction and that she's having prophetic dreams. She goes to tell Josh, who's stress baking because he's worried he screwed things up with Margot. There's an interjection here. This was cute where Derek's saying, wait, I thought Margot and Josh were an unlikely but heartwarming thing. And Penny's like, no, no, this is after the Lady Pike sweater incident. (laughs) It's like watching a TV show. Where do we leave off with the characters? No, you missed that this thing happened already. But of course, that's speaking for the audience's point of view. We didn't get any wrap-up on their relationship. What's going on there? And when Fen explains to Josh that her recent dreams have been coming true, he thinks there's a lot of reasons why that could be, and she should try lucid dreaming to figure it out. I was very interested by that prospect, and I kind of hoped that would go on longer with her navigating how to lucid dream and figuring out the secrets with that. Yeah, but what they did give us was really cool. I enjoyed that. And I love, just like in dreams... You can fall and then all of a sudden you're in a new area, but in the dream it kind of makes sense. Or it it seems plausible, but something's kind of off when the Mm -hmm. lizard lights on fire, but then you're like, well, fuck it, it's fillery, right? Things can happen there. So Fen is watching as they pour the beet juice antidote, the lizard lights fire, when she realizes it's a dream, forces herself to scan the room and spots the hooded figure rush out the door. She follows the green lady and finds herself in the forest, but the woman runs away again. It's then that Fen awakes and runs to warn the others about the ritual. Margot is not ready to believe her, but Fen insists she knows where the lady went, to Corian's land. She's confident the answers must be there and she will be the one to go find out. 
You know what? I should have done this at the top of the podcast. I have a fun fact for us. Right before the episode started, writer and executive producer David Reed had a tweet. He said, Fenn has a speech in tonight's episode of The Magicians that literally began as a typo, which we thought was funny. A round of happy hour cocktails later, it became the summation of at Brittany Coran's whole arc. Hmm. So I was keeping an eye out for when this speech would be. Well, in my dream, I chased her to this stream by the fuchsia forest of Corian's land. Corian's land, also known as Slot's Pain. I don't know what everything in my dreams means. mean. Anyway, I know that the answers to our questions, answers lie, lay there. <laughs> I, I'm not usually the one who gives the big speech, so I'm, I'm going, so that, that's happening. And with knowing what David Reed said, I'm like, this is definitely the speech. And I think it's hilarious because you could see where it's a run-of-the-mill typo. But the way Brittany acted it out, it was really well done. And I enjoyed that. I don't know about the whole arc thing, how that would build the whole arc. But maybe because this was her saying, sorry, I never make speeches like this, but I'm going to go. Yeah, well, I mean, Penny just told us that these three stories are important because they're going to change everything in ways that we really don't know yet. I don't think we could speculate on yet how Finn's journey is going to change things for all of Fillory. There's no way to even guess that, right? But this is why it was important um, to take a closer look at these three characters this time. So it's a lot more Fenn this season rather than Tick. Um, maybe because he's not in our good graces. We don't trust him. Yeah, he was a little on the outs. He's there back as an advisor, but Fen was the one that was ruling the kingdom while Margot and Elliot were gone. So she is way above on the power scale now. Now, do you think this lady in green is a good person or a bad person? Well, you just made me think, didn't Jane Chatwin wear a cloak? Wasn't it in she fact did wear green? A, cloak, a hooded cloak? I don't remember. And when I think I remember and I say it on the podcast and I'm wrong, I'm almost sure <laughs> now that you said that it was a green cloak. That's pretty amazing if that's the case. Yeah. She's trying to warn Fen and trying to get her to help. But I was thinking in a twist, which I don't think this is the case, but it would be pretty funny if the lizard actually would have been able to start talking again with that antidote and not be set on fire. And she was preventing that mm. so that Margot wouldn't progress in whatever she needs to do. But I don't think that's the case. What do you think this woman could tell Fen? Maybe explain why this is all happening. Honestly, if it was Jane, she's been through loops before. Maybe she's seen something that she's aware of the future. The loops that she was in were way back then. Yeah, but it could give her some point Insight. of reference to give advice, like the way Maybe. Dean Fogg could give the students some advice. But it was a brief stint in Fillory. We quickly move over to the next story, which is Katie's. Penny notes that he's happy she's moving on and points out that while Quentin and Julia were bleeding the stone, Katie had other things happening. In a conversation with Julia, she explains that she found a girl who had gone missing, abused by her father, and brought her home. She thinks the moment they all got their memories back, they dropped their old identities like they never happened. But she can't go back to being a sidekick. She needs her own path. She was happier with her identity in many ways as Sam. She was the head of her own story. She was very alone as Sam, but she felt like she had a grasp and she meant something. She was empowered to take action. She could make a difference with things. I believe she's missing that. I believe it's setting her on a dangerous course. Like she's manufacturing an area where she can find meaning mm -hmm. that perhaps is going to be a problem later. It makes total sense why she goes this route. But I'm nervous the motivations behind it. 
Yeah, with Katie, we've seen her on the outs with the crew. We've seen her be a spy. We've seen her do the wrong thing sometimes. To help her mother, a hedge witch. Yeah. Now with the loss of her penny, I think she's really lost her value in this group, which is unfortunate because she's very valued. And I think this group are the ones that care about her and need her help. But in an effort to be the center of things, she's moving away instead to this hedge witch group that I think is going to lead her down a wrong path. Yeah. I mean, there's so many little things that we could talk forever about. But one example is she was not a high king or high queen. She wasn't part of that whole thing with the group. Mm Mm-hmm. She didn't even see Fillory till way later on. Mm-hmm. And she was in a mental institute by herself. I can see there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons for her to feel this way. A lot of these characters feel like that, though. And that's what we talk about a lot. And they, and they wind up going off on their own. Yeah, Penny felt that to way. To try to deal with their own thing. And not coming together as a group, which would probably better help solve the situation. This is the point where the story starts to take a turn for her. When the landlord comes looking to collect rent telling Katie she lives on her property and under her protection. Thus, in two days, she owes the following. One Webster's Weeping Healer, one Totem of the Plump Pelican, and one Bag of Holding. Well, there's a few things. One, she doesn't know money, but I feel like this is harder to get than money. And is this just for this month? And then next month they got to find other I things? I think so. It's like a magical barter system. Oh, geez. I'd rather just... Go back to the physical kids. (laughs) But it provides a lot of good things. Like she has protection by living there. It it, it felt a little magic story manufactured. I need three items on a list. They don't really mean anything to us. She has to go off on an adventure to find them. Yeah, but it did play into the fact where she wanted to be a detective. Yes. Yes. And I think this is exactly what she needed. Mm -hmm. And put her back in contact with the hedge witch crowd. She already had the pelican, so now she sets out to find the other two items. She's looking for a guy called Love Lady at a bar. She's heard he can find things. And she realizes it's actually Pete who parted ways with Marina a while back. He has inherited this title. And as they talk, he recognizes the name of Baba Yaga by reputation. He agrees to help Katie in exchange for a promised introduction. Right before she met Pete, here's another example of a trained magician as opposed to a hedge witch. The bartender is doing this little trick with fire, right? Creating a little bit of light. And then she goes ahead and boosh, this big thing of light. Mm -hmm. So there you go. There's another dichotomy moment right there. Or even hedge witches that are higher up on the scale. We used to see that where they'd have to go in and prove themselves and take a test. The ones who had way more stars could produce... This much more elaborate magic. Yeah. Well, Pete takes Katie to the black market and he points out one of the traders who is Whitley. And we have seen her before. When Katie inquires about the bag of holding, they explain it's a Doctor Who kind of bag that's bigger on the inside mm-hmm. or a D&D reference. Not having enough currency, Katie has to trade until she's able to get her hands on something valuable enough. Alistair Crowley's ashes. Now put a pin in that. That's going to be our... Character review, deep dive speculation for the episode later on, though I'm not forgetting about it. With this trade, Katie is able to get the bag of holding. Meanwhile, Pete was supposed to be looking for Webster's Weeping Healer, a creepy doll that cries healing tears, but he was just getting drunk instead. But he did find someone who can help. Yeah, they find out. A guy named Duke has the doll. They go to his house, but discover him dead inside with blue marks on his arm. 
Then they had that weird moment. It was funny, but it was, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. With the thing from Adam's family. Oh, the, hand, the hand running around. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean, there's so many random things <laughs> yeah. just like thrown into this episode. Like, let's embrace it. The Baba Yaga, <laughs> the hand running around. Just it's embrace just it. Plump pelicans. I don't know. Ember's balls. <laughs> it was a little scary, though, that they found him dead. The stakes went up a lot, and it quickly escalates even more. We see that it's not just him. Pete finds the doll and also steals a Dewey coin from Duke's pocket. This is the moment you mentioned where we start cutting to and seeing that other people are marked as well. We see that second trader at the black market putting away Dewey's into the cash register. He also has marks, is sweating, looking very sick, and then passes out. And then we cut back to the apartment where Pete also passes out. At this point, Katie calls for help and brings in another Hedgewitch. I don't remember his name, but he tells her it looks like a bad spell interaction. This is where we learn that a cursed object or something could be clashing with the personal enchantments. And Katie puts it together that it's the Deweys. She hands the coin over and the Hedge checks it, tasting cobalt. Tells her it's used in most tracking spells. If you hold it long enough, it sends a signal out to the caster. Yeah, I think it was the vet that was called over. The vet that was drunk with him. I think his name was Gordy. The important part here is that Katie realizes the library is responsible for all of these deaths. They've been tracking them. This is an ongoing problem. In fact, when Pete awakes, he sees Katie has called a meeting of all the hedge witches. She tells them about the trackers. They utilize a complex, expensive, high-level spell. They're all marked, and their home enchantments could prove fatal. The library is trying to find someone, and the hedge witches are collateral damage. But they've underestimated them. Katie wants them to put aside their differences and unite. Well, this is when we find out the whole backstory behind last episode where they actually blew up the library. And yeah, it all makes sense I now. I like the connection Yeah, that as soon as Whitley approaches her after the meeting, I was like, oh man. She tells Katie she has a friend in Modesto who tipped her off to a leaky pipe and they should make the library pay. Katie gently warns her to sleep on it instead. I think she believes she's mollified the girl. You know, they're going to find a way to make this right, but they don't need to take extreme action right now. This also made me put two and two together that our theory must be correct. No, because that Sheila was somehow involved or had more information that she's letting on. How did they learn about the leaky pipe? Oh, I see. Well, no, they learned... Well, the timing's a little off here. This might have been after the store manager called her. The other hedge witch. Yeah, when he felt the power. We don't know the story... We don't know the timing specifically. It feels like that was enough time to coordinate all that. And I don't know. It's like... I feel like we're missing something. Also, though, timing-wise, I was wondering, and I think we've brought this up before... Are any of the scenes with Penny in the underworld even on the same time track? I mean, Penny's, the stuff that's happening with Penny could be happening farther in the future for all we know. Does it necessarily line up with all of this? That's impossible to know mm -hmm. because those books are written ahead of time. They already know what's going to happen to them. So it could still be in the present and they're just reading about the future but that does open up a lot of possibilities to who he greets at the door. Because if that is in the future, it may be months in the future. Yeah, we, It's someone that we haven't even seen die yet. 
that's kind of exactly where I was going that we know it can't be too far in the future because Penny 23 was brought down there to talk to him. But again, there could be some differences. We don't exactly know how it all lines up for him yet. I do want to speculate more on that later, though. First, let's come to our third and final story. Derek wonders if the head librarian, Zelda, is having a nervous breakdown and thinks they need to get a message to Everett about this. He even considers using the dragon that connects the underworld to that branch. We've seen that dragon before. But Penny says being down here gives you a new perspective. perspective. There's shit we know is going to happen that people up there would give anything to stop. But we can see the bigger picture. It's not our job to stop the living from doing what they do. It's our job to appreciate their full life. We see, but do not intervene. For a lot of good reasons. I can see this is wigging you out. Let's start with an easier one. All right, so this, knowing that it's a test now, is Derek trying to find out, is Penny going to intervene still and try to help his friends out? Or can we trust him and promote him? Mm -hmm. Or even just trust him? I'm sure there was a lot of factors behind this. Then we see Zelda pull the book Notes from the Underground and head to a meeting of the council to discuss Alice. The Notes from the Underground, I think, was just another book that she was going to give Alice to read. I don't know if it... I mean, they did sit on it for a second, but I don't think that book specifically will mean No, much. she knew Alice was gone. No, this was on her way to the door. And she, then she was like, oh. You think that was before she even found out Alice was missing? Yeah, she was bringing the tray with food and the book. Oh, okay. Hmm. In the council meeting, the head of personnel is explaining how she saw the reindeer-driven sleigh on the roof. Zelda says Alice broke their deal with them and tried to turn off all of magic. That has to have consequences. But she's against the head of regulations idea that they should have gone after her or even killed her. Everett agrees that they are an order of scholars, not assassins. This is going to be a constant weighing out for the library as long as they're in power like this. Because you have to draw your own lines here. And I believe Zelda is starting to draw a new line. And she's... She's doing a lot of things from an emotional point of view that maybe make us more sympathetic to her, but are definitely clouding her judgment as well and could cause problems later. Her scholarly answer here is to read their books and learn their intentions. Nick's book has been taken and presumably destroyed, but they can look at Alice's. They can use tracking devices to disperse a wide search. Everett agrees they'll probably go underground, but they can track hedge witches. And once Alice is back and no longer a threat, there will be no need for further corrective action. Mistake number one on Zelda's part, because she's not paying enough attention and has her own things going on she doesn't think about what could happen with these (laughs) coins that she puts out there the next thing though do you believe that if they get alice back they're not going to do anything else to her i believe if it's if it continues to be up to zelda that they're not going to or at least right away i'm starting to think and this may be way off but i'm starting to think that a part of her looks at alice as a second try that she doesn't have with harriet Oh, yeah. I mean, Everett pretty much says that later, that he understands her connection to her is Harriet. You know, he says, yeah, Alice reminds me a bit of Harriet, too. That's when he says he wishes Zelda would have taken some more time off to grieve. He can see that emotionally this is clouding things for her. She's willing to be more lenient, perhaps, with Alice. It's while he's telling her this that her hearing starts fading, 
We get this first instance of the ringing and we hear the glass crack. But Zelda informs Everett that Alice's book shows she feels magic has caused nothing but trouble. She will go on to live a civilian life in Portland, running a craft brewery. It's unexpected, but wouldn't be the first time she walked away from magic. I think she actually believes it right now at this point, even if it does seem unlikely. She wants to believe it. She wants to believe it until he makes that comment that he pictured her more as a cat person. And then it looks like red flags just start going up for Zelda. She doesn't say anything, but she's like, oh shit, something's not right with that. I don't know if she's a cat person. Last time we saw her with a cat, it blew up. (laughs) But she's going to try to track this down on her own and figure it out. She goes to the brewery to inquire and finds out Alice is not there. But she lies to Gavin when she comes back outside, tells him it's exactly as the book said. She's there. She then turns to Dean Fogg seeking help, which is really interesting. She's lying to all of her colleagues. She needs to go to somebody to try to get advice. But the Dean is not in on this at all. He says he's not going to be dragged into her mess and she's got to figure it out. It's then she starts hearing ringing again. Sees blood, follows the trail to the mirror in his office, where she reaches out to Harriet before the mirror shatters. She returns and pleads with Gavin for help in finding Harriet. She insists that she can't be dead. And after all, they don't know that much about the mirror world. She confides Harriet is her daughter, and he is the one who trapped her there. She needs his help to pull this off. So they walk through the mirror into a copy of their library. Gavin stays to offer blood and keep the entrance open while Zelda goes inside to have a look. This scene is scary, phenomenal. (laughs) It was by far my favorite part of the episode. The whole Zelda storyline felt the most compelling to me. I was really interested not only in the inner workings we hadn't gotten to see with the library that's just so fascinating to me, but this emotional journey we were really connected to with what's going on with Harriet, the magical interests and intricacies of what's happening in a mirror world. Could somebody be surviving there? Then she comes inside of it and it almost seems like the space that Elliot's trapped in, inside of, well, his mind, <laughs> that the monsters put him there, that there are actual monsters running around this place. Yeah, and the fact that it's basically a mirrored image. The first Harriet that we see is copying exactly what she did. Oh, terrifying. Oh, so terrifying. <laughs> I think that was more terrifying than the creepy faces that were yes. after that. A few things. I don't know why my brain thought that Harriet and Victoria were just trapped in this little dark room bridge. That's how they made it look last time, yeah. But it's turned into this whole another mirrored world. That was just the bridge linking one place to another. So I guess they ventured out. So I guess my next question is, did we ever see Harriet? Was that person in the mirror originally Harriet or the Harriet monsters, whoever those things were? Yeah, don't know. Is she still alive at all? There was a lot of talk about mirror bridges in the book and the way they worked, the dangers of what could happen. This seems like it's going to keep playing a role, so I don't want to say anything until we're through with the story, but it was always a terrifying prospect to me, the idea of it. When Zelda steps into this world, it's almost black and white. It's like the color has been desaturated. It's very dark. It's snowing in certain areas of the library. Yeah, creepy. Everything's backwards. The portrait on the wall shows the back of the woman's head. There was a part where it felt like one of your favorite Doctor Who episodes 
that took place in an abandoned library. Yeah. And of course, when Zelda approaches these Harriet monsters, she runs back to Gavin. He's been stabbed by a Harriet monster. He convinces her, we gotta leave, and the two of them rush out. And then things get even worse, because back in her office, Zelda learns of the attack on the Modesto branch. They lost four librarians. It was hedge witches, fallout from her tracker coins. But Everett tries to reassure her it wasn't her fault. Actually, they learn the true dangers they're in. And that your trackers might provide a solution. What do you mean? Complications aside, the idea is sound. Put whatever we have into circulation among them. Keep Modesto from happening again. Are you suggesting we kill hedge witches? I am suggesting that we keep an eye on them to protect the flame of knowledge from being extinguished, no matter the cost. I wonder if Zelda is going to become obsessed with trying to get Harriet now. Will she lose focus with the library and her main goal? Well, she's already losing focus, but I wonder if this explosion at the Modesto branch is going to bring her back a bit, because she definitely feels extremely guilty over that. Well, she's got Alice there now at the end of the episode, and you said Sheila's there. So maybe she wants Alice and Sheila to venture into there, and Sheila will use her honing capabilities to find Harriet, maybe? She's definitely going to ask Alice for help with that, because they asked Alice the first time around... Poppy stole her Niffin notes that she had wrote all about mirror magic and mirror bridges to try to figure this out. That's right. So that's for sure what she's asking with Alice's help for it at the end there. Ooh, and we know something about next episode that might piece that together. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, does Alice really have any choice but to agree? I don't know how this is going to go. What terrifies me is coming back to Zelda's response when Everett tells her, yeah, we're going to put these coins back out anyway knowing it's going to kill people. And she doesn't really protest too hard at that. He says the Order and Zelda herself are suited to bear this responsibility, and she sort of goes along with it. So this is going to set up the war, presumably, that Katie's going to be leading these hedge witches that are revolting against the library. Oh, and finally, we go to our last narration by Penny, where he says, Zelda doesn't know it yet, but what she just set in motion will change the library forever. Fen for Fillory, and Katie for all of magic. Oh boy. (laughs) So he wasn't kidding when he said, these aren't just side characters. They're critically important to the story. I don't know what he was talking about here with Zelda, if it was the tracking coins, the agreeing to do what Everett says, or her search for Harriet. What what is it that she's doing that's going to change the course of the library? But he continues, when you file people away as sidekicks, you change the story forever. You're telling the world what and who to value. That's what their responsibility is here. Yeah, they're the Google of today. And they're deciding what gets top ranking in the searches. And where they fall, those categories were so interesting to me. Like thinking about where would my book be shelved? Yeah. You know, I keep thinking, change the story forever. Maybe this Zelda part is what brings the library down. Maybe they should be brought down. I mean, we <laughs> we keep saying this. The order has gotten so carried away, and it seems like they believe they're doing the right thing. But now we've taken this drastic step forward where we find out they know they're killing people, and they're intentionally going to continue in that course of action. I mean, this is not okay, right? This is what Harriet was railing against when she told Zelda she won't stay and be part of this. And here is Penny 
not just accepting his position, continuing with this job, but passionately explaining to who he believes is a trainee how important their job is, how necessary it is for them to take it seriously and think about what they're doing here. And it's that that convinces Derek. He says, well well said. I think you've earned the right to move up. I know so much about you and your friends, but you never asked me how I died. Okay, um, how did you die? Arrow to the chest during the Crusades. The Crusades? A a thousand years ago? We really thought the story was all about white guys back then, believe me. And I'm not new at all. I'm actually your supervisor's supervisor. So, you're my boss. I fully see the irony of a white guy giving you this test, but ladies upstairs love a twist, so they always send me. Send you to what? To promote you. You're clearly ready for the next level. Which is? Secrets Secrets taken taken to the grave. grave. He will collect them, and they need him to start right away. So our final epic frame, Penny walks through the halls to the elevator, the door opens, and he says, Hey, been a while. Welcome to the underworld. Well, he didn't say that happily, but yes, he did say it. He didn't go, hey, been a while. No, he didn't. But I want to ask you, I couldn't really read his tone. Did he seem upset that this person was here? No, um, I think he seemed cognizant of what emotions he should be presenting. Hmm. If you watch Penny walk those halls, even there, I think he's setting himself into a frame of mind. I think this is more difficult for him than he's going to show. Considering Penny's reaction, I don't think there's a lot of speculation about this, that it's somebody major like Katie that just died. No, I I don't think think that would be his response to her, even if he's monitoring himself to any one of the group. If he just found out, I mean, yes, he would know based on their books what happened to them, but I still don't think he'd be so cavalier. So, I started thinking of people like Sylvia that we've seen in the past who feasibly could show up here, but it wouldn't be as detrimental as one of our crew dying and coming to the underworld. It wouldn't be somebody like Hades because he'd be speaking a lot more in deference, I believe. No, I don't think a god would go through there. So any thoughts? I don't have a solid enough answer to start uh, giving my thoughts, my opinions. I just, I don't think it's going to be the cliffhanger they're leading us to believe it is. No, I don't think so. I, just like Quentin was going to die in two days. Mm-hmm. But maybe. I don't know. I love the fact that I don't know. I think we've pretty much covered all of our questions as we went through this synopsis. So let's head over to our rating. Each episode, we give a rating of one to ten rations. And just like magic rations, less is worse, more is better. Jason, what do you give to episode seven, The Side Effect? I'm going to give 8.4 rations to the side effect. It was a really good episode. We got to play with time a little bit. We got to find out why some things happened last episode. And we got to see some characters spread their wings a little bit. And of course, we got a little bit more Penny 40. More Penny 40 is always better. I loved the narration. I liked the structure of the episode. Although I'm not going to be as high as I was on the last one, I'm going to give it a solid 8 rations. We have not gone below eight rations for this season. I don't think for last season either. I think that's the lowest we've rated, which is still a phenomenal We love the magicians. And now we move on to our digital water cooler, 
where we ask our Clashers, who is your MVM? And on Twitter, every week, via at CKC Podcast, we give our Clatchers a poll. So this week we gave Katie, Zelda, Fen, and Penny. And coming in at fourth place with 12% is Fen. She had some great moments there. I think she only got so much because we were left with more questions than answers. But it seems like Fen is finding her footing. And I'm hoping she comes out of this by becoming even more valuable to the crew. Well, finding that inner thinness, it seems, yeah. is, is her journey for this season. And she is very valuable. If you remember the first couple episodes, Elliot did not want anything to do with her. And she's, you know, she's ruled for them. Yeah, she's had a quite she's, a journey yeah, from the has. beginning. Hey, quick question. If anyone dies in Fillory, do they go into the same underworld? Oh, yes, we know that. We've seen that. The map maker. Yeah, it seems like it's all connected, but we still kind of... We do have a lot of questions about the way that works, right? And the branches, and we're continuing to get shots of the Cheerio worlds that it feels like every time they show them, we see more of them. Yes. This time, it, it looked almost like a belt. We've never quite gotten that view prior Very to this time. Very big. They're rotating around something. Hmm. Well, coming in a close third is Zelda with 18%. I think she really moved the story forward a lot, maybe the most out of any character this episode, but she had such emotional, existential, moral uh, dilemma going on here and maybe made some really not great choices, which is why I think her percentage is lower. Hey, you know, we got Dean Fogg again. That was nice. Hello, Dean. <laughs> For a half a second. <laughs> and rounding up our poll, coming in at second place with 26% Penny. We're really starting to see who this Penny is after he ate the cupcake. Is it a long game that we're not aware of yet? Or is Penny cemented in this world? Yeah, we said last time it seemed like he really drank the Kool-Aid and oh boy, he's, he's even being promoted. <sighs> It doesn't feel like a con. It feels true. It feels true. Absolutely. And if we remember last season when he spoke to Hades, Hades said, if you stay here, you're going to grow tremendously. You're going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is where he's meant to be. Legit. But coming in first place with 44% is Katie. Good for Katie. I feel like she doesn't get many MVMs. And it's not Jade's fault. It's the way it's written. Almost as if she's a side character. (laughs) No, I'm just teasing. You know, it's funny, though. We did give it to her, or at least you did, episode seven of last season. And she was on our podcast. She said that we were her favorite podcast ever. (laughs) I, I do think she moved the plot forward tremendously in this episode, but I am really nervous that her actions are going to have negative consequences. I'm Uh, maybe I mean, maybe she's going to lead. Maybe she's going to be the leader in this war and maybe it's going to be good consequences. And oh, my God, is she turning into her mother? Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) they're blowing up library branches to get back at them. I understand. That wasn't her idea, though. No, 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 it wasn't. But when she does find out about that, how is she going to feel? Is she going to back off her leadership somehow? I don't think so. I really think we have to see where this goes for her. Well, is she turning into the person that she got rid of? Marina. Mm. I wonder. I mean, not turning into her as a person like the quarks. I'm seeing. I'm saying the leader. All that being said, I think I can't rightfully give it to her. The person I see being most influential, and perhaps it's not really obvious because right now he's mostly observing, but this episode feels to me like Penny. The Underworld branch knows a lot 
And it, at times, they even feel more powerful than our regular library branch. I know I they don't they are. step in to intervene, but I'm so curious to see what else is going on here. So I'm going to give it to Penny this time. You know what? For those same reasons, I'm also going to go with Penny, but I'm also biased. It, it would be closely followed by Zelda, uh, but I, I think she was being influenced by so many other factors this time around. Well, let's see what our Clatchers had to say. Amir said, what an interesting episode. Definitely loved getting into the characters that usually don't get as much screen time. Katie made a comeback and killed it. She was so powerful. Honestly, at Jade Taylor, bravo. So glad to see you again. All right, let's be quite clear in our distinctions here. This is Brian T. who says, I'll just leave this message to trick you into reading it on air. Oh, now this is a real Brian thing. Wound up getting to see it in time after all. All good choices for MVM. Gave it to Penny, but it was great to see Katie channeling Sam. Zelda might have gotten my vote, but most hedge witches would disagree. Love seeing Fen be a stronger character after season three. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah. And what Brian is referring to is I wrote in the poll that we're recording a day earlier because we're going on a family trip this weekend. (laughs) But he did get the opportunity to watch the episode on time. So awesome. Thank you, Brian. Sherry says, for me, Katie was the obvious MVM of episode seven, especially after her inspirational speech. If we could stop screwing each other over long enough to work together, then it's not the library story. It's our story. Yeah, I like that. She also left an awesome photo of Katie on the stairs. Mm. She looks badass there, huh? I like those stairs. You would. <laughs> Meg says, super interesting episode. Superbly done by the writers, actors, and director. Can't wait to watch it again. Arjun Gupta, always a pleasure to see you on screen. Also, I can't wait to hear more of those storylines. And did you see the preview for next week? We're going to talk about yes, it. Yes, we are. Shauna said, love the directing this episode from that awesome establishing shot that flips over Penny's head. Yep, Mm-mm. that's what we were talking about. To the creepy, awesome mirror realm, there was a lot of visual eye candy in this one. Absolutely. Brian with a Y. <laughs> All I can think is magic war. Uh, that'd be pretty cool. War has, uh, uh, I get a weird emotional feeling with war right now because Game of Thrones is coming and there's going to be an all out war and we're going to lose some loved ones. So whenever I hear war in our favorite shows, I'm a little like, shit. I don't think magic is, um, I don't think magicians is going to go that extreme. No, no. I mean, they're not afraid to take characters, but we've also seen they don't really disappear from the show either. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Please don't change that. Sherry also is wondering who is the green lady in Fen's dream? Could she be a fairy? Fairies have different sources of magic and could influence dreams. Well, that's a good thought. Wow, I like that. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, we have yet to see what Margot's fairy eye is going to do. Except for the only thing, the more I think about it, we've never seen fairies in normal clothes. That wasn't exactly normal, but they... Well, you know what I mean. They also wear like all whitish colors Mm -hmm. that look distinctly green. So... We'll see. Patrick says, I really love when Arjun Gupta gets the opportunity to speak more than a few words at a time. Yes. The summation at the end was beautiful, and the writing weaving the plot twist in with the thread of the episode was awesome. Seeing more of the Hedgewitch world was great, too. Yeah, I'd like to see them come into the fold a little more, be more valuable to us rather than the Hedgewitches that were quote-unquote evil, and we didn't really like them. Mm -hmm. If they become part of the cause, part of our team... I think that'd be valuable. It's, they're going to have to check them because right now they're an influence at the opposite end. I mean, you don't yeah. want all out revolt. But Katie either. might be the one to do that. Yeah, she would have to really organize. 
Sherry also says, please give a shout out for the black and white film noir horror scene where Zelda tries to save Harriet from the mirror realm. My heart was pounding heavily as Harriet faded and hideous monsters appeared. Stupendous. I couldn't agree more. I said before that was my favorite shot by far and away of the episode, maybe of the season, even though I had Mm. problems with some of the episode. This I thought was so beautifully done. Uh, Very interesting. She thinks that that was the real Harriet and that's why she faded away. And she was not able to really speak. That's why she could only reflect what her mother was saying. Ooh, that's curious. If that was the only real Harriet. I want her to be alive. I just can't help thinking we've gone so long without seeing them at all. And emotionally, what that would do to Zelda if she is gone. Yeah. I guess just feels more narratively like where they could find the meat. Hmm. As much as I don't want to lose her. I like that. And finally, Larissa says, I'm anxious about Penny and the greeting, but I'm telling myself that if it was Quentin or Julia, he would have needed to say welcome back to the underworld because he knows they've been there before, right? (coughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. And I just I feel like his facial expression would be different if it was either one of them. It, It was so resigned. But at the same time, the more I think about it, I feel like it has to be someone pertinent. Well, if Harriet is gone, could it be Harriet? Oh, well, okay. Maybe. She's pertinent. We, we saw a lot of suspense with that this time around. Yeah, and that's why Derek was like, you have to start working right now. Huh. It's got to be someone and we know. And that still gotta impacts be... Zelda in a big way. And us too. And us too. That's one of our favorite characters. I love her on screen. I could see that, actually. If you guys haven't watched West oh, Wing... tell me it's not Elliot. No, no. I don't think so. If you guys haven't watched West Wing, you gotta watch it. She's amazing on that. Hmm. It's on Netflix. Well, and finally, I just brought up Elliot. Dan had written in after last week's episode, but we got it late. When we were talking about Monster Elliot craving tequila because he's in the Elliot body, I forgot later he said about churros too Mm -hmm. and it was all being written off for comic effect but dan brings up a good point it seems some of elliot is having an effect on the monster since he surfaced is he actually kind of influencing the monster more could he be taking back some level of control and that's what's coming through here with the monsters you might be right physical cravings because since elliot broke through for a second we haven't seen what he's been up to Mm. He might be finding other ways, absolutely, to take control. That would be tremendous. And that's why I don't think Elliot would die. There's too much meat there. Dangling. Yeah. Yeah. Brian R., Brian with a Y, wrote in to give us this really amazing information related to Alice. He said his English class just finished reading the play Tartuffe. I hope that's how you pronounce that. By Moliere. It's a French comedy of manners where Moliere is mocking the crown for how the church was the true power in France. The character of Oregon reminds me the most of Alice, originally seduced by Tartuffe, the false prophet, and when he realizes the error of his ways, he decides to believe that all holy men are fake, but he's then forced to see reason by a logical man who tells him to take the middle path. So my question would be, do we see Alice at some point become a kind of lawful neutral character who believes in using magic only for the big things and never for the small? Or does she become uncaring and decide to leave magic forever? We've already seen her become uncaring, mm-hmm. so I don't want to see that again. Using it only for the big things is a really interesting concept. And would I, make sense. We were talking about her finally seeing magic could do good, 
by clearing that water. Will she decide to say, okay, not all magic is bad. It's a tool. Like Sheila said, it depends how I use it. And because I have a lot of power, I could choose to use it sparingly in certain circumstances where I think I can really make a difference. Maybe this is her newfound purpose in life. I think that would be an excellent arc for her character and to see moving forward. Now, this Brian also called in to our voicemail to dispute my comment last week. I said Brian T. called in, and it wasn't. It was this Brian who Brian called Brian R. So I'm very sorry. I think sorry. I said this... Brian R. too, but there's so many Brians. We need, um, we need a better system. We do. We need we a bigger apologize. boat. <laughs> we need a bigger boat. But we did get another voicemail. He said to go ahead and not play it, so we'll uh, respect his wishes. But we have another voicemail. Hi, yeah, I'm calling about uh, Last Night's Magicians, about Katie. I'm thinking that she's starting to realize that she is a side character. She's not even real, and she's becoming self-aware. Just because throughout the show, I've realized that the show is about books, and the characters seem to be self-aware that they're in the story. So that's just my theory that Katie is becoming self-aware that she's not even a real character. She's just a sidekick. Let me know what you think. My name's Alfonso. Have a great day. Well, thanks for calling in, Alfonso. Awesome. Yeah, I think that was her whole struggle this episode was that she feels like a sidekick to the other characters, but she doesn't believe that's what it should be, that she could be more if she forges that path and becomes more Sam-like. She's trying to reclaim some of that identity that she had while she was Sam. Like we said, it's just a matter of how does, how does she do that? You know, does she go about that in the right way? Which is, it's tough. And we can't forget everything she went through. I mean, she's been through it all. And she's lost Penny. I mean... Her parents, a lot of things. Yeah. She even says here, maybe a factor we'd forgotten about. She used to be friends with Julia. And she's like, you know the hell happened to that when she's talking to Julia at the beginning, you know? Well, thank you to everybody for writing in and contributing. As always, this conversation is amazing and just enhances our experience of the magicians. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Instagram. And if you love what we're doing, check out our Patreon. A lot of Clatchers have joined the Patreon team and we're so excited for you guys to listen to the library of content. If you have trouble finding it, just email us and we'll help you out. And we have uh, some really fun episodes coming out this month for you. I got a little weird and a little crazy, and Christina just let me go with it. So I have no control over the situation, is what he <laughs> actually means to say. I, I was just told, this is what's happening. So listen, Clatchers, once you hear it, you can just blame Jason. Send him all the hate. <laughs> This brings us to our character review for the episode. Just like last time, it is really more speculation and diving into the mythology that's behind the magicians this season. We will give you a warning before we go to the actual spoilers for the next episode. We hope you will join us. We said we were going to come back to a point that was mentioned earlier in the episode where Katie is trading using the ashes of Alistair Crowley. It was a brief name drop, but I thought to myself... Well, that's got to mean something, right? So I started looking up who this was because I wasn't aware. It turns out he was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, and novelist. During his honeymoon in Cairo, Egypt, he claims to have been contacted by a supernatural entity named Iwas. Triple threat guy. Who provided him with the Book of Law, a sacred text that served as the basis for his religion that he developed, Thelema. He identified himself as the prophet, Entrusted with, ready for this, guiding humanity into the eon of Horus. 
Oh, yes, that's right, guys. We're coming back around <laughs> to last week's Egyptian mythology with Osiris. He thought there were a couple of different eons. First, a long time ago, was the Eon of Isis, a maternalistic time period dominated by goddess worship. All signs point to the Egyptians. And Osiris. It keeps coming back and back. And Isis, yeah. Yeah, so we talked last time that Isis was his wife, who, according to the myths, found the pieces of Osiris, put him back together, and was able to, in a manner, bring him back to life, but put him at rest so he could go reign in the underworld. Well, according to Crowley, the next period was the Eon of Osiris, where paternalistic religions like Christianity and Islam dominated the world. But finally, in the 20th century, he believed would come the Eon of Horus. And if you recall, according to our story, Horus was the child that Isis was able to conceive when she briefly brought Osiris back to life. Horus was the equivalent of Hercules in our Greek stories and would really come back to avenge the death of Osiris at the hands of his brother Set. During this eon, Crowley believed people would take increasing control of their destiny and align themselves with their true will through the use of magic. So this brings the magical element in line with all of the Egyptian mythology that we were talking about through this one individual. Now, how did he believe you did all of this? Through a ritual. Okay, His great work was attaining the knowledge and conversation with one's holy guardian angel. You did this through something called the Abramelin Operation, a ceremonial magic ritual that he obtained from a 17th century grimoire. This told about the Egyptian mage Abraham, and it describes a ritual with a long, elaborate, and difficult preparation that can take anywhere from 6 to 18 months. It involves a lot of pieces, such as you have to remain chaste, be fair in your dealings, no alcohol. What does that mean, remain chaste? Um, don't have the sexy time oh (laughs) so you had to purify your body essentially no alcohol none of that if you were able to do all of that then perhaps your magician's holy guardian angel would appear and reveal magical secrets to you at that point the magician must evoke the 12 kings of hell and bind them to gain command of them in his own mental universe and remove their negative influence from his life And finally, he could use a set of talismans composed of magic word squares, each square containing a magical goal. It was almost like a chess board. Okay. And the whole point of doing this ritual was that you would be able to then obtain those goals by going through this whole process. Sounds arduous. Sounds pretty crazy. (laughs) But the tie-ins were kind of unavoidably there. I don't know how he fits into all of this, but it connects Egyptian mythology to magic actually making mention of Osiris, Isis, Horus. This being the time of Horus where we would come back and avenge that death of Osiris. Get even with Set or Typhon, as we said last time. And that would be right now. So, I don't know. Is this a journey that our magicians are going to go on? Is this a guidebook? Is it a ritual they're going to have to accomplish? Or is it just another wink-wink saying it's 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 about our man? Yeah, another clue That we're looking at Osiris could be any one of those things. With the magicians, you just never know. That finishes our character review and leaves us with just the actual spoiler section. What's coming up in the next episode? If you are afraid of that, we will see you next time when we review episode 8. For those of you still here, we have very minimal information as the season goes along. I feel there's less and less given out. We do know the title is Home Improvement. 
It was written by Jay Gard and Alex Raymond and directed by Joshua Butler. The synopsis is Penny licks an egg. Alice is jealous of a flower. Tells me nothing. Penny licks an egg. God, I don't have the faintest. And which Penny? Oh, good point. We do see in the preview, Alice realizes that her mother called the library on her. She turned her in. Oh, okay. This is, I mean, you know, we know Alice's mom is sort of not the best and they left off (laughs) on not great terms. We haven't seen her in a while. This is going to be interesting what happens here. And Quentin brings back into the room a character we haven't seen in a while, Poppy. He says, come see the others. And unless my eyes deceive me, it looked like she was pregnant. Yes, they even made a joke about it. This is totally out of nowhere. But I'm wondering if this was brought into the fold, her being pregnant, because she actually is pregnant. I know that she she just had a baby a few months before last season started filming. The actress. Right. So I'm wondering if she's actually pregnant. And they were like, well, let's write it into the character. Well, they... This could be a tricksy thing. They do this a lot with the preview. But when Quentin brings her in, he says, we have something to tell you. Making it look like it's their child. I don't think it's Quentin and Poppy's child. No, not at all. I think that was a clever editing thing. But I'm wondering if Poppy's being brought in because she's the one that stole the book about the mirror. She was there and peaced out on them right before the mirror bridge shattered. That's why she wasn't stuck there. Do you think she still has the book? Well, what she had was Alice's notes. That's what I mean. Alice's that's, Niffin uh, that's notes. What, yeah, the notes. Because Alice is probably like, I don't remember everything to Zelda. She's probably like, oh, yes, I did write something about it. I don't remember. Poppy has it. She stole it. I don't know, because Alice still has, though, a ton of power and ability. I think they would still need her. No, of course, they need her. But maybe she doesn't remember everything that the Niffin Alice Mm-hmm learned about it i think more like they need poppy to tell them what happened in the bridge right before she left okay okay and maybe that'll provide some kind of clue maybe whose baby is that home improvement i mean even the title's not telling me anything we did see q have sex with her last season i yeah i know that's why i say but i think Um, it's a fake out out. yeah i I don't know i don't know (laughs) we'll have to see Well, that pretty much sums it up for us for this episode. We're recording it a day early. Hopefully I get this out earlier, but also we'll be traveling. We have quite a long trip in the car, which I hate, by the way. (laughs) So a lot of car sickness and hopefully enough juice in my laptop. I'll get this done for us. Thank you again to all the Clatchers. Thank you to everyone who's been following us, who's rating and reviewing us on iTunes and all the other podcatchers. Don't forget to check us out on Patreon. Give it a month. See if you dig it. Remember, you're not only getting new content, you're helping Christine and myself out. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. (laughs) 